Welcome to the College Nerd Network, a podcast series part of Simply Neurosciences The Synapse. My name is Simone and I'm your host for today. The College Nerd Network has discussions with neuroscience professors as well as students to gain insight into the neuroscience department and opportunities in the top universities from around the world. Today's episode is focused on the University of Pittsburgh, a public research university located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I can personally vouch for Pitt since I'm a student here and there's some really breakthrough research happening. And because of that, there are numerous research opportunities for undergrads, great professors teaching classes and great class sizes. Today, joining us is Dr. Caroline Runyon, a neuroscience professor at Pitt. Welcome Dr. Runyon, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your experiences and your fascinating research. Well, thanks for having me. All right, so to start, um, can you please briefly introduce yourself uh, to our listeners and tell us what initially sparked your interest in biology or kind of like what set, your, what set you up to the neuroscience path specifically? Yeah, so I am an assistant professor of neuroscience at Pitt and I run a research lab that studies the circuits of the cerebral cortex and I also teach undergraduate classes. I started my lab back in 2017, um, and I guess I, I could give you a little bit of an overview of how I got to, got to this point of wanting to run a research lab in neuroscience. So when, when I was an undergrad, I still remember coming in as a freshman and feeling really anxious, not knowing what I wanted to do, and I, I was interested in the humanities and social sciences and, and the hard sciences. But I, I just, I felt so confused about how to pick a major. But my first advisor was uh, a musician. He was a professor of piano performance. And I had this uh, freshman seminar with him and he saw how confused I was. And he was actually running a course on the neuroscience of music along with the neuroscience department. And he said, I think you would really like neuroscience. It's so multidisciplinary. It involves, uh, you know, it can involve music. If you're interested in music, you can study how the brain processes music. <laughs> there are so many different facets to it. And I took my first neuroscience class on his suggestion and I was totally hooked. And I think the thing that really hooked me was how little is really known about how the brain works. And on so many levels, like from the molecules to the cells, to the synapses between cells, the circuits, the networks, <laughs> the connection to behavior. And there's so much that is known, but so much that is not known. And I remember on the first day of class, the professor saying, well, here's your textbook, but in 30 years, half of what's in here will be proven wrong. And to me, that was just so different than the way my other science courses were conveying the material. So that's what really hooked me. And going on from there, I got involved in research, but what I think, I, I, I thought I would go into medicine as an undergrad, as I think a lot of undergrads do that are interested in neuroscience because I was reading books by Oliver Sacks. And uh, my favorite book is Phantoms of the Brain by Ramachandran. And so I was really inspired by these clinicians that were thinking about how the connection between you know, disease and behavior and the mind and the brain. And, uh, but then when I tried doing research, I realized that's really my love is just being in the lab and 
answering and you know answering a question myself um, with every experiment you learn something new that someone else doesn't know <laughs> so you're contributing to knowledge so um, that's that's what got me on this track and yeah from there I you know I went to I did research for a couple of years before going to grad school because I was rejected um, <laughs> as a senior <laughs> I applied to University of Pittsburgh, as well as several other graduate programs. And I did not even get an interview um, because I didn't have quite enough experience, I think. So I went and worked for a couple of years and then um, got, on, got on track and I think became even more clear on what kind of research I wanted to do. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, for me personally, um, I also got into neuroscience because I was confused about like, what exactly am I gonna do? So since I, I was in an Indian school, so basically all my friends were pre-med per se, cause you just go straight into, uh, into like a medical school from high school. Um, and then I was like, well, I don't think like that's, I don't think that that's what it is for me. But then there was this um, one senior project that we had to do called our biology board project. And then that is uh, when I like actually got into neuroscience and neurodegeneration particularly. And I was like, oh, this is, this is great. Like, why are we not learning this <laughs> in high school already? But um, yeah, I really love that. Like with neuroscience, as you said, like you can incorporate music, acting. Uh, some people do th that kind of stuff. Uh, for me personally, it was my love for math and physics and biology as a base. I love logical things, I guess. Um, so neuroscience was kind of perfect because I didn't have to like let those things go. I could, you know, like develop all of my skills at the same time. But yeah, uh, could you tell us roughly what a day in your life, like at Pitt, uh, doing your work would look like? Because I bet COVID has changed things up, but um, we'd love it if you could compare your work life pre-COVID versus the post-COVID era. Yeah, I mean, so I think now things are pretty close to what normal pre-COVID was like. And that is that no two days are the same. And that's uh, one of the things that I love about being a scientist is that, uh, I mean, we talked about how multidisciplinary neuroscience is as a discipline, but being a scientist and educator and researcher, I mean, it's no two days are the same, even as a, as a trainee, I would say that too. So uh, a typical week maybe I could say is that I might spend a day or two in the lab, um, in my lab, I have a few PhD students and undergrads and postbacs, and I will go in and see, well, maybe we're starting up a new experiment, or maybe a piece of equipment is malfunctioning, or maybe we need to write a new piece of code to analyze some new data coming in. So I just kind of go into the lab and make myself available and see who needs help with something. And one of my favorite things to do in the lab is to build things. So. Um, I, I'm always involved when we're building a new uh, rig. We call our rigs are the sort of full um, setup that we use to record behavior and record from neurons. And um, it's, it's all enclosed and it's all uh, 
comprised of custom built parts that we're connecting computers and um, soldering little electronic components. So that's what I love to do. And I love troubleshooting equipment. So that's what ideally I'm spending at least a day or two doing that because that's what I love the most. <laughs> but then um, there, there are many other things that I, I love about the job too, that I spend probably at least a full day of the week meeting with the people in my lab. So uh, we do, we have a, it's not a, I wouldn't call it formal, but it is formal in that it's, it has to happen every week and it's at least half an hour long. And it's a chance to one-on-one -on -one talk about what, what a student's progress is, what were, what were their hangups from the week before? What are their goals? What are their career goals? We, we can talk about everything from the minutia of experiments to you know, these um, long range career trajectory type of things. And a lot of my time is spent uh, during the semester, I teach a class. So as you know, Simone, a <laughs> couple days a week, I will be lecturing and you know, leading up to that and preparing the lectures and interacting with students. Um, and then more broadly, I'm involved in, you know, I organize a seminar series in the neuroscience program. So I'm, you know, helping get, you know, speakers coming in and meeting with the speakers and setting up their schedules and attending talks. So yeah, I, and then there's the writing grants. <laughs> so in a given week, I might be, if there's a grant coming up due, which we have one coming up in a couple weeks, I might be spending a lot of my time, um, you know, reading papers and analyzing preliminary data, making figures and writing. So there's just a huge range of things that I get to do from, you know, communicating science to other people, doing research, but mostly helping the people that work in the lab to do their research. Yeah, that's honestly really interesting. Um, I I wish I like had access to these kind of uh, people, I guess, and resources to like learn more about how scientists' days are, because it's really not that like commonly shown in like mainstream media, like television or anything. I mean, I think like Big Bang Theory is like the closest we got to scientists. Yeah, I think it's a media. really good point because when I when I was an undergrad, I and I was confused about my career path, I took, I went to the career services office and I took a personality test mm -hmm. and they told me, you are such an introvert that you should be a scientist because you'll be alone in the lab doing your experiments and you won't need to talk to anybody. And that couldn't be further from the truth in what it's, what it is to be a scientist because I spend my entire day talking to other people and whether it's people in my lab or people outside the lab in our university or outside the university at conferences, it couldn't be a more interactive job. <laughs> exactly, and I, I had like the exact opposite, um, I guess, experience with the career center situation. So I took one in, um, I think it was like my sophomore year of high school. And I like, as you can see, I'm like really outgoing. So they were like, oh, like, scientists like are you sure you're gonna get depressed like just living alone in the lab and I'm like I don't think that's how it works like you you can't just do everything on your own like there has to be collaboration but yeah I fought my way through that 
Yeah, I will say that the COVID era did make things a lot less interactive. And that's what was really hard because mm -hmm. our science thrives on interaction. And maybe we're not formally collaborating with each other, but different people in the lab have different levels of experience. So running into each other at the water cooler or just hanging out outside of doing the experiment and just talking about, oh man, I'm really having this problem. And someone says, oh, well, have you tried this? And suddenly, you know, you, you yeah. have that epiphany on how to make things work. And so I think that's been the hardest thing about COVID is that we've been, we were working a lot more in shifts and well, I'll come in and do my experiment and then I'll go home and mm -hmm. we can just interact on Zoom. And we've replaced a lot of what we used to do in person on Zoom, but uh, those chance interactions, they, they just, they need to happen. And now we are back to more of that. So we're, we're getting close to the normal pre-COVID era again. Yeah, I'm really happy about that. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned uh, teaching classes at Pitt. So I wanted to ask what drew you to becoming a professor at Pitt specifically? And kind of like, in your opinion, what makes Pitt's neuroscience department different than the other universities that you've been at? Yeah, so one thing that makes Pitt different from other institutions is the sheer number of neuroscientists. So we have, I don't know what the current count is, but well over 140 neuroscientists here, uh, like independent researchers. And so it's just a, a, a huge number of people to draw from, to interact with. And then right next to us, we have Carnegie Mellon University, and we have this really unique cross-university collaboration that is the Center for the Neural Basis of Cognition, the CNBC. And so we have this very fluid um, collaboration, interface for collaboration between the universities and we can harness the strengths of the two places. Um, I have a few different collaborations that involve three or four more um, principal investigators from both CMU and Pitt. And so I, I think that this community has established this level of collaboration that I've never seen anywhere else before, um, that where labs are working together on bigger problems that we cannot solve on our own. So we have our tiny focus that it takes a lot of effort to do one study well. It takes three to five years in our field, but if we can, um, if we can interface that with another lab that's answering, thinking about the same question, but coming at it from a different direction or maybe taking a more computational approach, then we can work together and learn some, even more about, about the brain than we could have on our own. So that, that's yeah, what I, I love agree. about this place. Yeah, my lab as well, um, like I, I know I'm there, like located at UPMC Children's, but they have like a bunch of other principal investigators like along with them. So they're always like collaborating on something or the other. And that's, that's really nice too. The, I will okay. add the other thing that drew me to Pittsburgh is that I'm from this area. So oh, okay. I grew up an hour away from Pittsburgh 
And just to, I've found the importance of being near family. I didn't always appreciate that when I was younger, but now I have kids and I see how enriched their experience is by having grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins nearby. So that's been really important for me too, to have, so we have this incredible neuroscience network here and I'm just, I'm lucky that I'm from this place and my social and support network is also here. So I've, I, I really value that too. Yeah, that's that's so true. I mean, I think that going back home for a year because of COVID, I definitely realized like the importance of family and how like how much better it is with just having them around. Um, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your research. Um, I think you already went over this uh, briefly, but if you could kind of elaborate or uh, give a bigger overview about your research, like what kind of methods do you use? Or um, I guess what kind of like are your broad lab goals? And perhaps like if you have an idea, like how do you see your lab going in the future? Like let's say five years. Yeah, so yeah, so five years is like the blink of an eye <laughs> in our field. But yes, yeah, so we're, we're, what we're really interested in is how the brain is able to adapt to function differently in different situations. So as humans, we're really good at appropriately adjusting our behavioral output, depending on the situation. So uh, one sensory stimulus might elicit, you know, one response in one situation, but in another could be totally ignored or may require a very different response. And I mean, this is important for like, I don't know, social adaptability, but for survival, uh, for many things. Um, so we're, we're really interested in this ability of the brain to adapt on short timescales. And so we, we think about this in how information flows through networks in the brain. And as I was saying at the beginning, where we focus on the cerebral cortex, um, which really is um, important in a lot of what we think of as our human abilities in cognition and executive function. So, um, but, but we use a mouse model to study these things um, in a more reduced preparation because we have the ability to uh, really zoom in and study cir the circuit level uh, and the neuro individual neuron level. So, we use a special microscope called a two-photon microscope that allows us to image activity in the living brain during performance of perceptual tasks and behavioral tasks. And then we can use, uh, I'll just throw out a couple like buzzwords that people can look up if they haven't heard of them before. We use optogenetics, which allow us to control activity of neurons using light. And we can combine this with our imaging methods to study how does information move between different networks and circuits in the brain? And how does this change depending on whether this signal is important for a behavioral choice or not? And as far as where we're going in the future, um, we already talked about this huge community at Pitt. So one of the major strengths at Pitt is the translational research that goes on here and clinical research. So um, there's a lot of work on um, schizophrenia and addiction and other, uh, other brain disorders. And so what I'm really interested in in the long term, which maybe not in five years because we're still really establishing these methods for ourselves, 
but to then say, okay, uh, we're working at the basic level of how do these circuits function, but then maybe we can then establish a platform for studying um, at the network level, how is the brain altered in a complicated disorder like schizophrenia where there may be issues with how networks communicate with each other or gate the flow of information. And then maybe even also assess possible treatments. Um, so if there is a good mouse model for schizophrenia, um, which I'm not sure that there's been a perfect one yet, of course, because can there be a schizophrenic mouse? But some of the hallmarks of schizophrenia can be modeled and then we could test, well, why does or does not this certain treatment um, solve some of these systems level issues? Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, what has been, in, in your opinion, like the most exciting or your most favorite research finding yet? Well, that, so that's hard, that's hard to say. Um, so I, I think the, as a trainee, um, pretty much any time I got an experiment working, that had me jumping up and down. And I love watching the brain in action and listening to it. So um, sticking electrodes into the brain, into the visual cortex, and actually hearing spikes, because we, we always hook up our amplifier to uh, a speaker so we can hear the neurons firing and uh, being able to just show a visual stimulus on the screen and re repeat what has been known since the 1960s that <laughs> neurons in the visual cortex, they, they'll fire bursts of spikes when their preferred stimulus shows up. Um, so, so that those just um, being in awe and seeing, observing for myself uh, how how neurons are working, uh, but then to be able to take it a step further and learn something new about the system that we didn't know before. So I think one of my favorite things to work on was in my PhD when we were trying to combine optogenetics with calcium imaging in vivo. And the, the, this was in the early days of both of these methods. And um, for the being able to um, find a clear result that when we make these certain inhibitory neurons fire more than they usually do, and we shine light on the brain, they perform this very obvious function um, by depressing the activity in a very um, specific way on other neurons. So I think for me, I'm very much a methods person and I love just doing experiments, hearing neurons fire, watching them flash, and then it, when we analyze the data, seeing some clear effect, that's also really exciting too. Yeah, that's, I 100% agree with that. I think um, when I was in high school and my, when I was like contemplating like, what is like, am I gonna go into neuroscience? Am I just gonna stick to biology? Like what's my career path? I was always like, well, we know so less in neuroscience. Like, am I just gonna get like tired almost of like seeing the same things again and again, maybe and like, wait for something new to come up or work on and I was totally wrong and I was so happy that I was wrong because I remember in my intro class when we heard the um heard the neurons for the first time that was like the most fascinating thing ever I like I did not stop listening to them for a good month but um yeah so what tips or recommendations uh do you have or would you give to someone who's interested in being a scientific researcher. So 
like a lot of us, including me, are now preparing their grad school apps. Uh, so do you have any advice on like what makes a good application or perhaps like what you could do to like stand out in a good way? Yeah, so I think so in for, for earlier stage undergrads, I my advice is get involved in doing research. If you think that this is the direction that you want to go in that is it's so important to get the experience and maybe it's not exactly the scientific question that you think is the most amazing thing but just getting in the lab i guarantee you you'll if, if you if you have a proclivity for research you will love it uh even if you know it's not that exactly that huge question that you're looking after but to get a you know, a sense for what's the culture of a lab? How does a lab function? Um, how do I do careful uh, quantitative research? So th that's that's super important. And when we're assessing applications, that's something we absolutely look for is, is this person dedicated to research? Do they know what they're getting into? Um, because that's as much of a, an important issue because um, if someone hasn't been in the lab for more than, you know, during the semester, um, then they might get to graduate school and realize a couple of years in that this is not really for them. They, so uh, we talked about how interactive science is, but there absolutely is a lot of that time when you're in the lab and you're failing. Like, pretty much no experiment ever works the first time or the 10th time. So um, getting used to the, the failure of research is also really important. And I think undergrads observe that from day one when they come in and <laughs> experience the lab. So when preparing the application, so say you're an undergrad and you're, um, you're preparing your applications this fall and you've got your research experience, I think that the research statement could not be more important. So it's not just giving a laundry list of what you did, but it's showing us that you understand the big question that the research you're working on is trying to answer. And of course, it's understood that you're not the postdoc doing the work. You're not gonna, in every case, you're not gonna be first author on a paper, but knowing how the, the small role that you played is fitting into this big picture, that's really important. So showing in your research statement that you understand what's the big question being answered or what's the hypothesis that's being tested and uh, what did you do? What was your contribution to it? And what was the, what was, what was the result? So sometimes the result, we don't know it yet when you're applying to graduate school, but uh, where do you see this leading? What's the implication of it? So there might be one concrete result, but then try to go back and fit that into the bigger picture. So what do we learn from this experiment? And that shows us that um, this, this person is really cut out for research because they can do the work, but they can also think about how does it fit in? What, what's the point of it? Yeah, that was really insightful. Thank you for that. Um, you mentioned about like how you, you, you need to know about like failure and stuff in research. And I remember uh, my intro to neuroscience professor 
had once mentioned like that she uh, really liked people who play instruments or have like taught themselves instruments in her lab because when you're like learning an instrument there's you just start out with like a lot of failure and then you finally get it and then you kind of see the results of that so that reminded me of that um it absolutely is like practicing because exactly. um, in fact um a postdoc I worked with when I was a student who made a big impression on me. He would say, what you're trying to do here is on roller skates, like quickly skate up, leap up into the air, do a pirouette and with chopsticks, tie a bow up in the air. And, you know, you wouldn't just like do that all at once. You would work your way up to it, like learning each of the steps, like learn how to skate, <laughs> learn how to tie a bow with chopsticks, <laughs> and then bring all of it together. And so that that's very much how research is. We're like putting together all these pieces that it sure takes a lot of patience. Mm -hmm. And the rewards are huge when you get that result at the end. For sure. Um, if there was any parting piece of parting advice that you would want to give to our listeners right now, I guess, in terms of um, study habits, maybe, or self-care, or kind of how to stay engaged in um, neuroscience throughout high school, undergraduate, um, and even graduate school. I mean, I think that's a given that you would be in that field, but um, just things that you should really not miss out on, if that makes sense. What would that be? Yeah, so I think... Um... As I was mentioning on talking about applications is thinking about the big picture, the why, why are you interested in this? And to, to seek out um, opportunities to learn about that. So uh, can you attend seminars at your university? So I know here we have all kinds of seminar series going on. So um, check out the website at your school and see what talks are going on they might be really hard to understand because an hour research talk uh, can be pretty difficult to follow, but certainly in that early part where they're rationalizing the background and telling you why they're studying this, uh, you can really learn a lot and maybe find out about fields in neuroscience that you didn't know about before that you didn't learn about in your classes. Um, and then, yeah, absolutely just getting involved in research as much as you can. For high school students, it's really tough, especially in the COVID era. I think um, it's 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 not so easy to just you know walk in a lab and help out with washing dishes or or, or you know doing those those small tasks that allow you to soak in the ether of the lab culture and, and you know figure out is this a place where you'd like to be. So I would just say try to be persistent. Um, email people. Ask. If, if they're not letting people in to do stuff in person, try see, is there some kind of virtual way that you can participate? Can you attend lab meetings? Or is there some kind of online project you can do? Although we all understand that that's not, it's not the same because um, it's really missing those important interactions, but do what you can to stay engaged with the field. And you, you just never know what things you'll be exposed to through these different avenues of attending talks or reading books or you know reading papers, uh, which things will you know stay with you later when you bring all these different things together to make your own research program down the line when maybe you're running your own lab. Yep, and that wraps up our questions for you, Dr. Runyon. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us for the College Neural Network. Your responses were so in insightful and will definitely help students from all over the world pursuing neuroscience. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure.